0: Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. As always, you're with Mike and Ian as we reread our favourite canon of books, the Aubrey Matron Patrick O'Brien canon. Ian, can you catch us up with where we were last week and where we're headed this week?
1: Mike, with pleasure. So, last time, Jack had sunk one French heavy frigate and helped another to turn and join the Allies with the benefit of a face-saving mock battle in the Adriatic. Stephen and Jacob had recruited the Carbonari to burn Bonaparte's shipyards along the Adriatic coast. There was Muslim gold heading for Algiers and Jack was tasked to intercept it and or Stephen had the task of convincing the day not to transport it in the first place. So that's where we were last week. Here's where we're up to this week. We're going to get some Shakespeare. Shakespeare on the subject of death. Yeah, yeah, that one as well. Um, We're going to get a strong blow. We're going to get more jeopardy for young Daniel and stories about his life. And meanwhile, Jack's showing birds to Stephen. Who would have thought it would be that way around? There's an (laughs) unredeemed gillick. We have Algiers. We have lions and tigers and bears. No, no, actually not bears, but we have lions and tigers. And Mike, there's a new day. In town, Uh a
0: new day in town. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Good, thanks, Ian. This is great. Well, you know, we ended last chapter with the surprise at Doraso, and and now we turn the page, and she's leaving, and seven shipyards, you know, are burning all around her. And two days later, we, you know, we're told the wind falters. And everyone who knows the area predicts an imminent levanter. So a big blow coming here. Well, Jack takes his usual precautions. O'Brien writes, Preventer stays, rolling tackles, the taking in of top gallons, the rigging of storm dribs and stasels, and the bowsing of the guns so taut up against the sides that their carriages squeak, all except for the brass bow chaser that fired the evening gun.
1: <laughs> it's like... This is one of the chorus lines of the O'Brien stories, right? It's great. Now, this is all happening at speed. We're doing this in the interval between the changes of watch. And despite this delay in people coming off deck and managing to get some rest, everyone gets to it with remarkable speed. The first gust of this levanta, this strong wind, comes racing across the water just as they finish this all, as the evening gun is about to go. This storm strikes a surprise from astern. It drives her foretop deep, and we hear that down below, Stephen and Jacob and their backgammon board and their dice are flung the length of the gunroom. And mm. Stephen gets us straight into a, an illusion here. He says, it was all the dreaded thunderstroke. I am in no position to contradict you, colleague, being your subordinate, said Jacob, but in my opinion it is the first blast of a levanter, and... I believe Shakespeare said, Thunderstone. I do not set myself up as an authority on Shakespeare, said Stephen. Nor I. All I know of the gentleman is that he had a second-best bed. I was aware that being gammoned twice running had vexed you, this is Stephen to Jacob, but to this degree, I wonder that competitive games have survived so long, such intense resentment do they breed. Even I dislike being beaten at chess. (laughs) And Jacob's about to come back in this little uh, verbal jousting here with an even more cutting remark when they get interrupted by Lieutenant Summers. But, Mike, there's two really interesting things for us to dig into there. And again, this is one of these things that I just raced by when I was reading it for the first time Thunderstroke and Thunderstone. Where does that take us?
0: Well, you know, it is it is a great Easter egg, as you say, and, and actually a bit of an ominous one here, you know, especially given, I don't know whether I would call it uh, you know, O'Brien's focus on or theme of death in this book so far, but Jacob is right. It is the dreaded Thunderstone. O'Brien's pointing to Shakespeare's play Cymbeline and the song Ooh. Fear No More of the Heat of the Sun. It's act four, scene two. And and this is a dirge. This is a funeral song being sung over the bodies of Clotten and Fidel. Um, And Fidel is actually the play's heroine, Imogene. Oh, this is spoiler alert. If if you're thinking about reading that play, (laughs) you want to avoid spoilers. Yeah. Fidel is actually a boy that's dead, but it's really the girl who's the hero. And she's actually just drugged, not really dead. I know. Shakespeare's uh, typical never used Shakespeare, typical Shakespeare plot, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> as as we get O'Brien playing some of the greatest hits, I think Shakespeare uh, playing a little bit of greatest hits here too. But right, right. the critics say that this poem, this short poem, or or dirge, funeral dirge, you know, being sung here, is you know that the point is that you no longer need to fear the hardships of life when you're dead. But I would also say, and some other critics uh, agree that it really emphasizes that death comes for everyone. And, and I would say for everything, that there's not a right. little dip, you know, there's not a lot of differentiation. So the Thunderstone reference comes from the third stanza, which will give you a little bit of a feel for this thing. It says, fear no more the lightning flash, nor the all dreaded Thunderstone. Fear not slander, censure, rash. Thou hast finished joy and moan. All lovers young, all lovers must consign to thee and come to dust. So don't worry about all these things oh. that you're fearing, right? We're all, you know, coming to death, consigning ourselves and becoming dust. And wow. so, and especially, you know, you know, with Stephen, with Diana, all lovers, all the, and, and the whole, this is, you know, this is the tone of this, all, all the stanzas of this poem. And then there is one other little Easter egg. It's Jacob's comment yeah. about Shakespeare, that he had a second best bed. And I kind of scratched my head on that one. And then I quickly realized, oh, wait, 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 we're, we're back to Shakespeare's will. In Shakespeare's yeah. will, he left his second best bed to his wife. And people have interpreted that. In many different ways. In today's thinking, we would think, wait, he didn't give her his best bed? Is that a snub? But the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust explains that the second best bed was likely the actual marriage bed. The first bed in a home at that time was typically on the first floor. It's meant to be a very gaudy, show-offy thing in which guests sleep. And it transfers across generations with the inheritance of the house rather than going to the spouse.
1: Huh. Fascinating. So all of that in one short sentence from Stephen and Who knew? So what is it then that we're going to get from Summers who's interrupted this little um, Shakespeare round here? He interrupts them to say that the spray blown from the crests of the waves by this great wind is going to soak them if they go on deck. They, they had first of all said, oh, is it raining? But he's going, no, no, no. It's spray in the air. And there's more about the violence of the storm. Killick comes in and says, Mr. Daniel has taken a tumble and it may be his collarbone again. Really unlucky on Daniel here. We learned that Daniel had been pitched from a skid beam to the deck, hitting his head and his shoulder on a gun and its carriage, which sounds really painful if you've got a half-knitted collarbone for that to be blown again. Stephen's really not happy about Daniel's collarbone and his general confusion And neither is he happy with his appearance. So Stephen fetches Jacob, who we get reminded here, had worked with Lanek on auscultation for a second opinion on Daniel's chest. And we remember from the Yellow Admiral that Lanek and auscultation had come up in the context of the the health. I think it was the health of Admiral Stranra, right? Right, right. So Jacob is trying hard to do his auscultation on Daniel. He has a hard time listening because of all the ship noise. And he tells Stephen that with Daniel being so undernourished, so meagre, and also from what he can hear, he can't be certain that there isn't the beginning of some kind of wasting disease like pulmonary tuberculosis. He calls it phthisis, which is a fancy name for a, uh, a lung infection. But he says he wouldn't be surprised if the pneumonia might not declare itself in the next day or two, and this contusion may turn very ugly. And Mike, this is genuinely an ugly picture, right? I mean, tuberculosis... Has been a killer for a long time, and tuberculosis was the was the fashionable killer of poets in the early nineteenth century as well. Poor Johnny Keats died of consumption, and um, I guess in a closed, damp, crowded environment like below decks in the ship, tuberculosis is not going to be a fun time at all. So this doesn't sound like a happy moment for Mister Daniel. Uh, there's, a, there's a nice little light close to this scene, though. Uh, Jacob says, "Do we have any leeches?" and Stephen says, "Oh no, the, the midshipman uh, stole them for bait." <laughs> So, <laughs> right. Go bless the midshipman.
0: Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Can't even work on that contusion for you, Daniel. Oh, it's no. awful. Now, Stephen heads out. He's got to leave because he knows he's got a toasted cheese dinner coming with Jack. And, you know, Stephen is thinking to himself as he's going over, OK, you know, what are we going to do with Daniel? I think it's going to be best for him during this foul weather to make sure we, once he's recovered a bit, keep him in the master's day cabin, you know, making all the calculations necessary for fine navigation. Now, so Stephen's sitting there now waiting for Jack, waiting for Jack, thinking about Daniel, and Jack comes in late. He's scattering seawater in every direction. And he says, O'Brien writes, there you are, Stephen. He cried, his red face and bright blue eyes full of delight. He looked 10 years younger. I'm so sorry to have kept you waiting, but I've never enjoyed a Levanter's half so much. And Jack is delighted. he says that this wind is strong, but it's steady now. They're making 14 knots. And he says, Stephen, you know, don't you want to come up with me on deck and see this bow wave? But <laughs> uh, perhaps that's not to be. What do you think, Ian?
1: Well, Stephen has other fish to fry. In fact, he has other cheese to toast here. And... uh We get a little toasted cheese scene. Again, it's a a scene that's very familiar to us. We get the little description of the serving of the toasted cheese in the silver toasted cheese serving thingy. And it's entirely what you'd expect. But there's something else on the table as well. And here's the description. "By your leave, sir, said Killick, in an obscurely injured or offended tone. Whittles is up. He walked in, stone-cold sober, as steady as a rock, bearing his elaborate toasted cheese affair with its spirit lamps turning blue and followed by his equally grave and sober mate grimble bearing a decanter of romane conti which it was eating this directly minute said killick with the clear implication that the commodore was late and set the dish down with a certain ceremony and apart from being brilliant classic killick character writing here there's a little signal of something that I suspect we're going to come back to in the chapter. This wine they're drinking, Romane Conti, um, I had to look it up because I've never drunk it. (laughs) Um, It's a very famous and very rare Burgundy, described as being one of the most sought after and expensive wines in the world. And when you dig into it, it's not that it was, you know, an an everyday tipple in Regency times and is now rare. It's been rare and precious for centuries. In 1780, the Archbishop of Paris declared it to be velvet and satin in bottles and in 2018 Mike a single bottle of the 1945 vintage of Domaine de Romani Conti was sold at auction for $558,000 that's for a bottle Uh, these days it's a little bit easier if you don't want to go so far back in the vintage you can get a bottle of the 2019 online at Harvey Nichols today for the knockdown price of just five thousand seven hundred and fifty pounds which is about seven thousand dollars so Stephen and jack are enjoying the heck out of the probably the world's most expensive burgundy and i think we're, we're, a little bit of tone is being set here for this theme that i think we're going to come back to of money and excess so yeah st- stick a pin in money if not in the wine and we'll see where we get to boy
0: it, it it's funny it And he's talking about money and excess, too. I couldn't help but note that, you know, as Killick is coming and going, wait, 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 you guys are not going to look at the bow wave. You know, it's Vittles is on deck, and he doesn't want them to leave because he's doing everything really well. But, you know, O'Brien makes us a point to say that Killick is stone cold sober and so is his mate. And I'm thinking... You've got perhaps one of the most expensive wines in the world, and Killick and his mate haven't been imbibing
1: yet. <laughs> Boy,
0: Killick must really be looking for redemption here,
1: you know, nice. to say,
0: "Ah, oh, because the last <sighs> time I was a little drunk on the cheaper wine and I broke the horn." And so, uh, again, it is funny as you say, in this, this, these kind of contrasts we're seeing them in all kinds of places here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow. Oh, and the wine was brought in in a decanter as well, which I'm sure happened regularly and with right. a regular potless kind of serving wine to the table, but he kind of making the point that Killick must have had to uncork this wine and pour it out and thereby smell it and look at the label. And even Killick must have noticed this is pretty decent stuff. But still, right. as you say, Mike, he's in self-denial mode.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, incredible. Well, after dinner, Jack says with this speed, if the wind holds, they're going to be able to make Stephen's next rendezvous by Friday if they don't stop at Malta. And Stephen says, well, Jack, aren't you worried about the impervious horrors of a lee shore traveling this fast? And Jack says, no, 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 Stephen, we're already in the Ionian. There isn't a lee shore for 100 sea miles. And Stephen asks, well, you know, now that you've mentioned it, what's the difference between a sea and a land mile? And Jack says, oh, Nothing much except the sea mile is rather longer and very, very, very much wetter. (laughs) Lord, what a wag I am, he says, wiping his eyes when he had had his laugh out. I thought, oh, I needed an old Jack joke here. It's well done.
1: (laughs) Oh, it's good stuff. And we we head along now and they're sitting just off of Pantelleria. This is an island right in the south of the Mediterranean past Sicily. And Stephen realizes now that it doesn't matter if the messengers with the gold have gone past or not. Their job is to get to the day and dissuade the day, D-E-Y, that's him, to dissuade the day from shipping it once he gets it. And Jack had told him that nothing could have left Algiers with this storm wind, even if the day had it, which is unlikely. Since the Huario, the ship that involved in transporting the gold, unlike a Zebek, would probably not have survived this tempest but the huario could have taken refuge in pantalaria harbor and i think they decided they'd rather know than not know so stephen in this rather complicated scheme sends jacob along with the purser who's going ashore for supplies and has them ask around to find out if a durazzo huario is there or has passed by and stephen with great solicitude asks jacob have you got any problems stepping down into the boat which is code for i'm really glad it's you stepping down into the boat not me and Jacob says, no one can say his spirit, his spirit is affected by six-foot waves. So chew on that, Stephen Right. So the, the scheme plays out, and Jacob reports that there's no word on a Huario having been there or having passed by. And the captain of the port in Pantelleria says, he doubts such craft would have survived the plow. So he's agreeing with Jack Aubrey's assessment. And he predicts that no one's going to be going by because for the next three days, because it's after a Levanter, he thinks there's going to be no wind. And like so many wise local forecasts made of experience, this one's completely accurate. On the other hand, Jacob's forecast about Daniel was not. I'm like, I, I hardly noticed this, but you know, there's a nice little rise of optimism for Daniel. We'd heard, you know, Daniel the young guy, Daniel the midshipman, Daniel held in the affections of Stephen, Daniel with an increasingly interesting backstory getting injured and getting sick with an infection made me think you know wh- where is this going to be headed but right. it looks like he's on the mender at least for now his thorax we learn no longer made the ugly noises that had concerned everybody the collarbone was going to take a long time to knit and i know from experience that can be a thing um and they agree that daniel must be supervised so that he doesn't go up on deck try to get up into the top whilst he should be healing and also so that Daniel doesn't get bored being alone in the sick berth. So here we have the uh, operation keep Daniel happy.
0: Right, right. Well, and, and it works really well. The Commodore, the officers, the midshipmen are all visiting Daniel often enough to prevent extreme tedium. And when they're not there, Stephen spends a great deal of time with him. Being around Stephen so much, Daniel starts to lose his shyness of the doctor. And, you know, Daniel always checks with Stephen about the birds that he's seen, uh, you know, asking them about him. And, you know, Daniel starts to share stories about growing up and talking about how he first learned math uh, in school, later, when he could no longer afford to go to school with his family. Uh, He was working in his family's shop, but his math teacher was a lodger at his family's house, and Mm. the math teacher would trade him math lessons in exchange for John Daniel, copying this gentleman's essays, math essays, in fair hands. Sadly, the man died, and Mm. Daniel continued to learn math on his own. He he tried reading all the math teacher's books, some of which were beyond him, And he did a lot of other reading while he was minding his father's shop. Stephen was asking about this and he said, well, you know, one of his favorites in, you know, short of math, math, always the first, but one of his other favorites was reading stories of long voyages and, O'Brien name checks some authors. This, these are things that Daniel says that he really liked. Harris, Churchill, Hacklick, and many others. And, he, and I, I couldn't help but wonder, okay, is this is this O'Brien in rare form or yeah, is typical form or not?
1: Yeah, it's funny. So these could be invented, or oh, this is O'Brien. He's he's dashing them off so kind of carelessly and in passing that they're bound to be solid gold. So let's have a look. They're they're pretty they're pretty good gold, I would say. These are all correct uh, writers about historical journeys, all correct that Daniel might well have had a copy of their books and have read them at the time. Uh, John Harris, his dates were 1702 to 1764, was Welsh, was an author on optics, trigonometry, and navigation. And he had published a revised version of an earlier navigational volume by another Harris dated earlier on. Um, Ornsham Churchill, I I don't think of any connection to the Churchill of Blenheim Palace and World War II and Fight Them on the Beaches, uh, Ornsham Churchill who died in 1728 and his brother John had published a very successful multi-volume a collection of voyages and Travels in 1704 and this was a work that appeared in many later expanded editions and of course Mike this is the era when upper middle class people from Britain did did the grand tour you know it was a thing to travel around Europe and see some ruins and see something of the world And then finally we have Richard Hacklett, an English parson. And a historian, he spent his life collecting tales and accounts of sea journeys, and he published a book called Principal Navigations, Voyages, Traffics, and Discoveries of the English Nation in 1589. So even further back than uh, Churchill and Harris. And Hacklett's book ran to many subsequent editions, is still available, and uh, he had also published some smaller volumes on English discovery and settlement in North America. And, and all of that comes to your courtesy of the Patrick O'Brien muster book. So great job. So we've got John Daniel reading for his own improvement. And I think we, we learned as well that reading had played a bit of a part in his backstory, right?
0: Well, it did. It, and, and Daniel's reading a lot. His dad has this great big bookshop there. But unfortunately, times were tough. He said when he was growing up, he's working at the shop. And it seemed that at that time, no one else was reading. There was almost no book business at all. What little... They did do. They did on long credit, credit which Daniel says, sadly, was often not repaid to make additional income. His dad would catalog great collections in people's estates, but they were long projects paid for once they were completed. I guess as times got tougher, a London bookseller called his fa- a, a bill from his father due. A gentleman whose large collection his father had been cataloging for a long time died And his heirs fell out over the will. So, you know, none of them was going to pay them until this was settled. It might not be settled for years. And they couldn't find anyone to lend them money based on their receivables. So, small young John Daniel took the bounty and gold from the Navy to keep his father out of debtor's prison. And that bounty, which he, you know, sent immediately back to his family, would tie them over for a year. So what a what a good guy. What a good, interesting yeah. guy. And then, you know, you know, you kind of wonder how a guy like this gets into the Navy. There we, we go. We kind of had a little bit of that before. Now with more time in the sick berth, we're hearing more and more about it.
1: Right. And we heard a little bit about excess and riches in the context of super expensive wine in the cabin. And we've heard a bit about poverty and near destitution. So there's an interesting contrast being set up here. I, I, I wonder where the uh, the pendulum of wealth is going to swing next i wonder whose story we're going to hear about i think that's too much excitement for one day mike i think we should just pause for a second to take a short break and calm ourselves down and we'll be right back if you're enjoying the podcast please come and join our supporters on patreon go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole
0: Welcome back. Hope you've had a chance to do a little bit of reading. Help out poor Daniel (laughs) and his father. Yeah. Well, when we return, Stephen is called away to assist Dr. Jacob, who's trying to contend with Captain Hobden, you know, remember our Marine captain here, who has been reportedly fallen down in a fit. And Stephen quickly realizes that Jacob has never seen a case of alcoholic coma so common among the officers. And Stephen's thinking to himself that you know, he doesn't realize that unlike the hands you know, who cannot bring alcohol aboard, the officers can bring as much as they want onto the ship, and they often do, and this is often the result. He's thinking, of course Jacob doesn't know this. His practice was primarily among, and I, I love how O'Brien wrote this, among Jews who drank very little and Muslims who, at least in theory, drink nothing at all. <laughs> and I, and I, I'm thinking of various and sundry of, of my friends in various and sundry denominations, and the fact that you know, growing up in in you know part of the time in eastern North Carolina, where the the state liquor store was always just a couple blocks off Main Street, so nobody in certain denominations would would ever run into each other going in and going out because, of course, we we didn't drink, right? So, well, Stephen Stephen tells uh Jacob, you know, what's going on here? And he says, let's leave the sufferer. And then he says, well, the to-be-sufferer in his cot <laughs> until morning. <laughs> you know, so it's like, you know, he's not suffering now, but he will be, he will be. And Ian, you were mentioning this kind of difference here and who's going to show up next? Here we go. Here's to, to Daniel's poverty. We have the Marine captain who can just indulge himself into an alcoholic coma yeah, uh, right. and, it, you know, Along with his, you know, German flute playing and, you know, insolence yeah. over his dog.
1: <laughs> all, all, all the signifiers of a character we are meant to not like. And we find it very easy to not like him. So that's good. Now, we, we go back to Daniel. And um, as Paul is bandaging him, she notices something about the injury on his shoulder. And she calls Stephen over. Stephen asks her for a lancer and some fine pincers. And he draws out. A splinter of bone. And this is obviously one of the things that's been causing this irritation, be causing the delay in this bone healing. And Stephen says, this is now going to allow you uh, a quick and painless healing. Stephen asks Daniel, continuing the conversation in a, in a light tone, I suppose, uh, if the beauty and fascination that he sees with numbers applies in the same way to the pleasure of music. Hopefully, I think and hopes are not to be realized here because daniel says he's heard so little music that he can't answer however he says he has had a splinter of bone come out of him before and he tells the story of what happened when he was 16 serving on a sloop called the rattler chasing a french privateer that had taken two west Indiamen. they chased her he says with everything they had until their main top gallant carried away and they lost her and meanwhile another english ship the dolphin caught the chase the next morning she was worth £120,000. If the rattler had caught her, Daniel's one and a half shares as a seaman would have given him £1,768 in prize money. And he didn't learn about any of this until the worst of his wound was healed, his head was being shaved, and to come back to the point of the story, he was having this other splinter of bone drawn out through his scalp. He says that he thought he would have run mad if he'd heard earlier on about the loss of this prize money. Ever since, he says, he's been haunted by this sum of 768 pounds. And what it would have meant to him, it would have meant invested at 5%, the sum equivalent to double his seaman's monthly wages. It would have given him a quiet life at home, maybe some time to read and go into mathematics. N- not excess, not riches, but enough private means to be at least a little bit comfortable he attributed some of his madness at this loss to the fever that he suffered that took him every day or two as he recovered and he apologizes he's been telling retelling the story to Stephen he apologizes he says for pitying himself and prating so but Stephen says not at all and kind of is willing to to just keep going on on the same level i think at this point mike we as the readers are sitting back thinking hold on a minute we're on a mission that has to do with gold and we've had expensive wine and we've had the rich guy falling over from his excess of alcohol yeah Let, let's see where else o'brien is going with this but i have a feeling that the theme of money is going to be important and Stephen matchering gives us a great signal here that we are meant to pay attention right
0: yeah. I, you know, Stephen says, you know, not at all as you say, don't, Andy. Don't worry about it. Just, yeah, but you know what? You know, He's saying to Daniel, I've heard about this prize money before. I know the sailors love it, but but I, I've never really kind of gotten how it works. Can you tell me more about it? And I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> when has Stephen Matcher never said, tell me how the prize money works? He's, you know, and particularly he's back in funds now. I can't imagine, you know, he's often heard of it, but he doesn't know how it works. Of course he doesn't. He's never been interested in it. But Daniel explains the payouts. He says captains get two-eighths of, of the prize, but if they're operating under a flag officer, you know, under the orders of an admiral, they have to give one-third of their share to that flag officer. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on, Brian writes, lieutenants, master, and captain of the Marines have equal shares of one-eighth. The Marine lieutenants, surgeon, purser, bosun, gunner, carpenter, master's mates, and chaplain equal shares in another eighth. While everybody else shares the remaining half, though not equally, the reefers having four and a half shares each, the lower warrant officers like the cook and so on, three, the seamen, able and ordinary, one and a half, landsmen and servants get one, and boys half a share each. And, you know, I I was thinking, well, this, boy, you know, we had a little bit of this accounting before. I'm not sure we ever had it quite down to this level of detail and thought like usual perhaps we should stick a pin in this i'm sure o'brien is not rattling this off just to show us that he knows
1: no he's really not and i think he's making you know symbolic and metro metaphorical points and allusions galore here so hang on a second let's look for our o'brien signifiers we've had uh food we've had this pursuit of gold which is important all the way through the chapter we've had things that are connected to death that what's the other big signifier that we get Um, animals and birds so lo and behold, in the next paragraph, we have a little animal allusion going on here. In the morning, Jack sends a boy to bring Stephen on deck in his nightshirt. And as they're approaching the Bay of Algiers, Jack points out to Stephen a flock of snowy white egrets and with one absurdly black glossy ibis flying along in the first group. And first of all, like we, we love the fact that it's Jack pointing birds out to Stephen and not the other way around. But we get this nice little story of how this flocks of birds are organized. He says, this ibis is flying along in the first group, continually uttering a discontented cry, something between a croak and a quack, which sounds a bit like Stephen Matcher to me. Mm-hmm. From time to time, it darted across the path of the leading birds with a louder shriek. Stephen had the impression that this ibis was extremely indignant at the egret's conduct and indeed so later migration well on in the month of may was unusual unwise against all established custom yet the beautiful white bird would not attend and presently the ibis left them with a the final screech and hurried as fast as it could to the father group which might perhaps listen to his advice and mike what, what do you think is going on here and, and do you spot any patterns or similarities here
0: well you know it's interesting As you say, Ian, I mean, birds, yes, we'd see birds all the time, but Jack showing birds to Stephen, it's got to be, O'Brien's sake, pay attention here. And you can't have but scratch your head saying, is this like the praying mantis scene from days old? Is this like the rhinoceros exercising on the deck? Is this going to signal or signify something in the larger story? You know, well, let's stick a pin in it and see if anything pays off. Also, always, an invitation to our listeners as the story continues to roll out. If you see anything, that you say, wait a minute, I think this relates back to this set of birds with the one bird trying to get them to do something different here. This, you know, the one absurdly black bird with the snowy white eagle.
1: <laughs> well, we get to debate it and meditate on it a lot. And um, the crew don't, unfortunately. Stephen never learns of what happens with this Ibis. Jack takes him over to the starboard bow to see something else remarkable. 100 sail of ships, a great convoy of merchantmen. And we learn that these are British and Dutch and Scandinavian and American ships, that there are two corvettes and also the sloop that Jack had sent to protect them. And even further off were some long, low-built Corsairs. These are the enemy waiting for their opportunity. Jack takes Stephen to see the sun lighting up the sea all the way to the African shore and the Bay of Algiers, the first light on the mountains behind the town and the Kasbah, the palace of the day. Stephen is really impressed with this and uh, he'd like to be better acquainted with the area. And of course, we remember that up in the Adriatic, Stephen seemed very, very at home in the coastline around Split, but he seems not to be so at home here. So I think he's going to be leaning on his friend, Dr. Jacob.
0: Yeah. Well, Jack too is going to lean on Dr. Jacob because Jacob, as we know, you know, knows the language. yeah. Jack says, soon he's going to send Dr. Jacob in town to meet with the British consul to be sure that if the surprise salutes the castle, the castle will return the salute. So we've seen this many times before. And Stephen says, well, you know, I'd like to go with Jacob, if you don't mind. I need to deliver a special note into the consul's own hands myself. And he says, if you don't mind, too, Jack, I'd like to take the ringle in for greater stateliness. Yeah, because Stephen, as we know, and as he reminds Jack, is preparing to meet with the day. He says he'll take a ship's boy with him and you know, send the ship's boys back to let Jack know about the salute. But he, he needs to get in there along with Jacob.
1: Yeah. So another mission ashore. I wonder what's going to happen here. We have a recurring theme in the book as well, which is Stephen's lack of sartorial preparedness. Um, Killick had made a, a bit of an error here. He had assumed that the doctors were going on board the Ringle to see old friends and therefore hadn't commented, no, nor less intervened on the state of Stephen's uh, rusty old black coat. His breeches unbuttoned at the knee, nor his crumpled neckcloth spotted with blood from a recent shaving. Um, not to mention the, the wig, which was all awry, and his down-at-heel shoes and his blue spectacles that O'Brien mentions just a, a few sentences later. Killick has had a really tough morning, poor fella. Um, he had presumed upon his status as the captain's steward, walking aft, and had shoved an armourer's mate, who in turn had shoved him back. And Killick had plunged between the skid beams down to the deck below, falling on two working men and their tools. And the armourer's mate, the giver of the shove, had said, you and your goddamned unicorn's horn and the men around him had set about him with jerks and cuffs calling him an abject reptile and an unlucky unlucky son of a rancid bitch that the officer of the watch had stepped in to intervene so killick walks away with his his mainly his pride hurt i think but he realizes the very very strong feeling of everyone around was still much very much against him so not a happy morning aboard ship For Killick. How's it going ashore? Yeah, how's it going ashore for Stephen and Jacob?
0: Well, Stephen and Jacob enter the town through a 40 foot wall and a heavily fortified gate. And they've got with them this young ship's boy who's entranced by everything he sees camels, slaves, vultures, just everything along the way. And Stephen is thinking to himself, this kid's got to make his way back to the ship later. He's telling him, pay attention, pay attention. But the kid is not paying attention. They stop at a coffee and hashish shop, and I'm thinking, oh, no, (laughs) (laughs) but actually they just go for the coffee, and Jacob has recommended this before they start their 500 steps up to the consulate, just below, because the consulate is just below this Kasbah, the day's castle, his palace there. Stephen is pointing out that there seem to be very few people in the streets of Algiers, And Jacob says, well, he did hear some of the local people speaking of the possibility of an English bombardment. So I guess the, you know, Jack's reputation has preceded him and all the Adriatic shipyards. But even so, Jacob remarks that he hasn't seen the markets this empty since the time of the plague. So, wow. Again, I kind of find it, I'm bringing it up now, I'm not sure I was feeling it quite now, but as 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 we kind of move to the end of this chapter, I found myself almost unconsciously tightening up and tightening up. Yeah. And now that I'm thinking back through, I'm going, okay, no wonder 40 foot wall, heavily fortified gate. No, 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 you know, haven't seen this many people since the plague that, you know, this few people and everything. So right. yeah, we go on,
1: right? I can't remember when it is. There's a time when either Jack or Stephen is going back to Walcombe and the house is empty as they walk up and we get this horrible feeling of where are they all gone. It's a little bit of an echo back to arriving at Sweetings Island where everybody's died of smallpox. Re- really clever. Very subtle. A little bit of extra tension. He's playing with us, really. but But who knows where this is going to end up. Good news. It's going to end up with an incompetent, entitled civil servant. <laughs> There's a young man sitting at the front desk of the consulate with his feet on the desk he asks who the devil are you and what do you want and Stephen introduces himself with a formal tone he says i'm the ship surgeon of hms surprise i have a letter and a verbal message for the consul alone and the young man tries to blow him off and says you can't see the consul um give me the letter and the message and Stephen says the letter is from the ministry and must be delivered directly into the consul's hand and the message itself is equally private he suggests that the young man should show the console Stephen's card, which he pencils some words on, and lays on the desk. And that that would have been a good uh, a good half clue, I think, in our cards against O'Brien game back at Christmas. <laughs> Stephen writes on the back of his business card. Dot 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 dot. Anyhow, he hands over this card. Uh, the young man changes colour, I presume, for the paler, <laughs> and says, "I'll go and speak to her ladyship." Huh. So her ladyship, Julie, comes in. Uh, She welcomes Dr. Maturin, saying that he'll not remember her, but Stephen does, in fact, remember her, and tells her what she was wearing, oh yeah, uh, what she was wearing when he had last seen Lady Clifford when her husband was part of Governor Wood's staff in Sierra Leone. Ah, Mike, we were wondering how long it might get to be before Stephen's mind gets cast back to the Woodses and Sierra Leone, and here it is. This lady was part of the same social circle in Sierra Leone. She says her husband here is in bed with the hip gout, suffering cruelly. And Stephen introduces Dr. Jacob and says, well, my colleague here is an expert with sciatica. Maybe we can help. i like, this is, this is not the first time, and I guess neither is it the last, that Stephen goes in and exchanges uh, uh, words about the intelligence situation under the cover of giving a medical consult.
0: Right, right. It's always been a great cover. Well, the consul is in, indeed in bed and, and apologizes for receiving them there. And he reads Stephen's message from the ministry and tells them that you know he needs to bring them up to speed. There's a new situation in Algiers and ask if they've heard the news. Stephen says they have not. But he says, but, but first, before you tell us, The captain really wants to know if he fires a salute to the castle, will it be returned? And and can I then send that message immediately with a a servant, one of your servants to get the ship's boy back to the boat with the answer. So the Commodore can come into the Harbor. Consul says, absolutely. It'll be returned. Especially given the way the Commodore has been playing old Harry in the Adriatic. And O'Brien writes, We've heard such tales here of Frenchmen joining you, a Frenchman being sunk, Algerines shockingly battered, shipyards going up in flames by the score. The only corsairs at sea are those from the very far east. All of ours are penned up in the inner harbor. <laughs> All the bad guys are not going out while you guys are around here. Yeah. So I, I you know, I'm thinking back to Stephen saying, you know, send the Pomona away. It's just going to be us and. I'm wondering about all these people going, oh, my God, it was those two ships. They've been doing all of this. So, uh, you know, fascinating here. But Ian, we must have heard playing old Harry many, many, many times. But I'm not sure we've ever actually defined it.
1: It's funny. It's one of those phrases that I can't remember why I sort of know it and sort of recognize it. But as a Brit, playing old Harry means playing, playing the devil, if you like. You know, playing war, some people might say, you know, causing trouble. And it's interesting to look into exactly what it does mean. Playing old Harry means to ruin something or to cause serious damage. Um, old Harry is a nickname for the devil used in northern England since the 18th century. So with my slightly northern roots, that probably explains why I might have come across it. And I'm sure there was a Radio 4 BBC comedy show called Old Harry that was based on the idea that the the, the devil was kind of recording a, a diary or something. I can't, anyway, old Harry, the devil. Playing old Harry means causing upheaval or damage somehow and clearly nice. that's a fair description of what the commodore has been up to at least in the adriatic so far so we get to go back to the current situation the consul lays out how it is here on the african coast of the mediterranean the day had been strangled strangled by the of Jan- janissaries that's the the palace guard and their leader omar pasha who in turn was elected as the new day And the consul had hardly known the Pasha in the past, doesn't have the influence that he'd had with the former day. This Pasha's mother was a Turk, so he speaks Turkish and Arabic and some Greek, but is illiterate in all languages and has a reputation for a very strong character and for intelligence. Sounds a little bit like Mustafa Bey over in the Ionian mission. Mm -hmm. Let's see Mm -hmm. if the comparison holds up. He says, the situation, meanwhile, for the Allies is unchanged. Up in the main continent of Europe, the Russians and the Austrians are still muddling along slowly, separated. And I, I love this nice little uh, metaphor here: separated by great stretches of mountain, river, and bog, and a strong mutual distrust.
0: <laughs> nice, well written. Well, Stephen, I've got, to, I've got to meet. The day and the council says, "Well, you know, I cannot arrange a meeting with the day, especially because right now he's off hunting the lion in the Atlas Mountains, and his vizier, who doesn't like lion hunting, is going to be found in the nearest oasis of comfort close to wherever the day is." And Stephen finds it kind of surprising and imprudent that a usurper to this, to the days. Office would leave his capital wide open to enemies and rivals weeks after winning power. Consul says, "Well, Omar Omar Pasha, this new day, was brought up with the Janissaries, so he was you know he was raised as part of the palace guard. He knows them through and through, and he ran the Janissaries' intelligence service before becoming their leader. So he's worked in intelligence for years as well. Huh. The council thinks he's gone into the mountains." in order to allow his informants, who are everywhere, to watch all those enemies and rivals come out of the woodwork here while he's gone, and suggest that he'll probably return to the Capitol silently and take off a score of ambitious heads. So it's a trap, he says. It's a trap. And so I think I'm still thinking, yeah, I can can feel for some reason everything seems to be going well, but... You know, I'm getting just a little bit tighter, a little bit tighter as I'm reading through this here.
1: Uh, so th- this guy, Omar, presents some difficulties in making an approach because he won't, won't read letters and documents and dispatches. He's going to be a tricky guy to get to know. So how about going the next rung down the ladder? So Stephen asks about the vizier, his kind of chief of staff. And the consul thinks that this vizier, who indeed had been the former chief of staff to Omar and his main support, was a very intelligent and literate man with high connections in Constantinople, which is at least still a little bit important. He speaks fluent French and has a wide acquaintance with the chief men in the Muslim states of Africa and the Levant. So pretty wide influence. So Stephen thinks this is our way forward. Uh, He and Dr. Jacob are going to go into the Atlas mountains and at least meet with the vizier who's going to be nearby to the day as he's doing his hunting. The consul says that a direct approach to the day without official standing or without former acquaintance would run contrary to local etiquette. So he says, it is indeed a good idea to go call on the vizier. That's what they're going to do, says Stephen. We'll see what we can do to prevent this shipment of gold, which could be fatal to England and its allies cause. So Mike, Mm. another example of a large sum of money having damaging effects. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and and it continues here. Stephen asks if the council thinks the vizier is corruptible. And the council says, well, you know, I really can't say, but in these parts, a gift is rarely unwelcome. And he has seen the vizier with an aquamarine in his turban. So apparently, you know, quite, quite proud of, of jewels here. And then as he's talking, the consul is consumed by pain. And Stephen and Jacob quickly jump in, find the source of the spasm. Jacob runs out, prepares a hot poultice, and returns with a vial of thebaic tincture. The bayic yeah. tincture. Ah. So... Ian, we 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 went to Matron's Medicine. Uh, I was going to say it's the P.O.B. Wikipedia or something I think also references that. I usually go straight to Matron's Medicine. I, I should probably put a link out there one of these days for that. But they suggest this is probably a medicine containing the musk of the male musk deer. Ah, always one of yeah. my favorites. Uh, <laughs> it, but it's used in India and the Far East as an anti-spasmatic, or it's possibly a tincture of theobine, a crystalline alkaloid extracted from opium, also called a paramorphine. Ooh. So I, I looked it up a little bit more too, and a number of people use this as another name for laudanum as well. So another you know, derivative. And I thought, no, no, O'Brien would not distinguish, but you know, he knows laudanum well. He would not be making this just laudanum. And Stephen would have said laudanum or everything. So some tincture here, but clearly we're, we're, in that, we're in that realm here.
1: Yeah, we are, because it has this remarkable effect on the console. He can't believe how quickly his sciatic pain recedes. He calls his wife and gets her to call for some tea or some coffee for everyone to celebrate the fact that he's now pain-free for a while. And as they're drinking their tea and coffee, they hear 21 guns fired from the inner bay, which is Commodore Aubrey saluting the castle. Hardly, says the text, hardly had the echo of the 21st died away along the walls, towers and batteries of Algiers than the entire series of fortifications facing the sea erupted into an enormous, enormous thunder by way of reply. And i have just paused here in the quote, uh, reference back to Thunderstone and Thunderstroke earlier on, maybe, I don't know. Enormous thunder by way of reply, one set of rounds merging into the next, and a truly prodigious bank of powder smoke drifting out over the water heavens cried lady clifford taking her hands from her ears i have never heard anything like that before and as her husband goes on to say it was the new arga—that that's to say the chief janissary it was the new arga showing his zeal if he had left a single piece unfired the day would have had him impaled So again, the the day is doing a good job of making sure that his writ runs in this town. And uh, this does seem like it's going to be a rather large volume of cannon fire, right?
0: Right. Well, Stephen thinks exactly the same thing. And he asked the council, you know, how many guns was that? And the council says somewhere between 800 and 1,000. And I'm really blown away now. This was this big fortified, (laughs) high-walled 1,000 guns here says he was having one of his men make a count once, but the man was stopped just before the half-moon battery. And they found out later it was a good place to stop since it turns out that lions and leopards are chained in that battery and only the gunners know how to get around the cats to safely reach the guns. So... he. Thinks, well, Stephen, I, I can give you a list of all the guns that we know about. And Stephen says, thank you, but no thanks. I, I'd rather not run the risk of being caught with that paper on my person right now. I, if I was found with that, I'd likely end up impaled and then fed to the lions and the leopards. And I especially don't want it now that I'm heading into lion country. So Stephen, with some some good sense. You don't, you don't get caught with a journal when you're an intelligence agent that we've learned many books away. And you don't yeah. get caught carrying around a list of the weapons of the potential enemies.
1: No. <laughs> Very wise. Ah, Stephen says, if the console is not too tired after this bout of what resembles sciatica but may prove to be something more transitory and less malignant, then he'd like to talk about the logistics of this possible trip to see the vizier by logistics he means that are the means destination mules even god preserve us camels guards equipment and anything else that occurs to your far greater experience and uh mike interestingly in in, in these last passages with the new day we've had information about his connections to the janissaries which are their uh sort of s- secular troops that have been recruited and bred for for ottoman service uh we've had these are connections to intelligence the strong fortifications we've had a thousand cannon we've had ties to muslim countries and on the other hand we've got surprise and ringle and a few more squadron ships and meanwhile steven's talking about being impaled fed to the lions and leopards and is now heading into lion country uninvited carrying a bribe and all in the context of a book so far that's been about death and the devil and the end of times and Mr. Daniel's Missed Prize of a Lifetime and the Lone Dark Bird and the Expensive Wine. Aye, aye, aye.
0: <laughs> right, right. Something, something's going on here. <laughs> yeah.
1: it really is. It's clever as It's subtle. You know, it's not like at the yes. in, in chapter one, everybody's sitting around a fire telling stories of how people got disemboweled by the Turks. This is very, very clever, creeping chapter by chapter, just what kind of shadow of darkness might be hanging over our heroes here.
0: Well, the consul says he's not too tired. He thanks him for their wonderful draft, their capital poultice, and the comforting words. He's he's hearing this diagnosis may not be as bad as he thought. But he notes that Stephen, mentioning all the things that he wanted to talk about logistics-wise, did not mention a dragoman, an an interpreter or a guide. And Stephen says, well, he doesn't need that because Dr. Jacob has spoken Arabic and Turkish from birth. And the consul tells Stephen he can draw with the consulate for one thousand pounds in gold if Stephen thinks it's safe to travel with so much gold. And here you go, Ian. You know, just as quickly as we were just talking about all this money and gold, it's like boom, back again. So yeah, wow, which, wow,
1: which, which is the theme of the chapter, and it's been laid out for us so clearly all the way through the chapter. We've got Daniel, like we said, bemoaning his loss of a fortune. We've got the cabin table graced by this incredibly expensive wine. We've got Stephen and Jacob plotting how to stop the transfer of huge sums of money. And we've talked, uh, I think, a chapter or two ago about the hand of glory being worth its weight in guinea gold. And, you know, O'Brien, at at the very least, is taking this time in his life and this time in the canon to direct us towards thoughts of temptation and excess and privilege and avarice what that means for his own thoughts and his own situation at the time I, I can't really think what what do you think
0: well it's it's interesting you know here's a guy who has for decades i suspect just gotten by on his publishing career and is now making million dollar a book contracts if yeah. I, if memory serves me correctly right. so his world has got to be vastly different and in the midst of all that excess, he loses the love of his life. So yeah, yeah. In, this, in this modest, beautiful, loving city of Collier, which he loves so much, losing Mary with the millions and everything, I've got to, you know, you can't, I can't help but think what in the world goes on in your mind at, a, at an intersection like this in your life.
1: Right. Yeah. And how, how much of what's around you, do you doubt and this, does, this, this is a, a, essentially, a, it's a sceptical view, isn't it? You might even say a cynical view of, uh, of, of money in excess. Huh. Well, how is our resident sceptic slash cynic, Stephen Maturin, going to fare? Uh, he's going to look at a map. He's going to talk to the consulate's groom about horses and pack mules and likely camels even. He's going to discover that they don't need that many guards since the day and his escorts have just travelled that way. Jacob suggests then that the guards should be Turks and the consul agrees, saying that most of his guards are Turks and that one of them knew the Atlas Mountains intimately well. Stephen and Jacob are making sure that it's not the youth who had received them today. It's not the guy with his feet up on the table. No, 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 it's definitely not him. He's the misbehaving, kicked out of school, son of a late intimate friend to the consul whose family wants to get him some experience in the diplomatic world. Yeah, back to privilege and excess again. His mother, the mother of this guy, uh, hopes that in the Muslim countries he won't be able to drink and it sounds like she despairs of that possibility. No, no, no. So it's not him. The former secretary of whom I was speaking was a scholar as well as a hunter and a botanist. Would he come with us the least part of the way, do you think? He would certainly go with you in spirit, I am sure, but a huge wild boar that he had wounded so mangled and plowed up his leg that it mortified and had to be cut off. But he will certainly tell you of a wholly reliable guide. End of chapter six. Right, right. So where have we come to here, Mike? We're ending on the sound of a setting out on a journey into the wilderness, which is familiar for Stephen, but we've got there via this route peppered with... Quite kind of distracting and dark tones.
0: Yeah, and and even the closing comments are, you know, here's this ideal guide. Everything Stephen would want. This guy, you know, he's he's knows the area well. He's a scholar. He's a hunter. He's a botanist. Oh great, let's take him along. Well, we can't because he just got mangled up so badly by a boar out in the same area where you're going. And it's funny because I remember I read through this quickly, thinking about kind of starting to get my head into the chapter and thinking, well, this is kind of more of an in between chapter, kind of like we had in the rhythm in the Yellow Admiral. But the, you know, I went back through it again. And the more as I came slowly to the end of the chapter, as we've been talking today, it just seems to be getting more and more consequential, like we're yeah. really setting up for something. Uh, and, and I'm thinking now something that I'm, I'm, I don't know what to expect anymore. You know, what I thought was kind of lighter, inconsequential stories, you know, drunk Marine officers, uh, Daniel when he was a kid, birds flying around. I'm thinking, wait a minute, they all seem more relevant now. I, and I'm starting to wonder, you know, what am I missing here? What's O'Brien setting up? What's he trying to tell us? What's he, as we were just talking about, what's he working through himself here? Um,
1: yeah. And there's the, all the different factors affecting him. Of, of course, his response to being without Mary and being alone and looking anew at this strange and unexpectedly kind of wealthy situation that he's in. His reaction to the real and maybe also perceived pressure from people saying, actually, oh, so you know, there's not much jeopardy for your characters now that you're 19, twenty books in. Uh, And maybe he's thinking as well, from his own creative perspective, he's into his 80s by now, I think. And he's got to find the creative juice to keep the characters turning over and keep the stories generating. So um, he's turned in a particular direction. And I've got to say, for me, he's he's, he's doing a great job. I, I don't remember it as being a book with that great big arc of tension, like in The Letter of Mark, for example, or The Surgeon's Mate. But it is really, really fascinating how subtly he's doing that. And maybe he knows his audience a little bit. He knows that we're all in it and he knows that we're going to follow the sort of subtle twists and turns and backwards and forwards and little bits of light and shade um, maybe more easily than we would follow um, in one of the early books. I don't know.
0: Well, it's, it's a great point. I was thinking actually about how this thing seemed to be working on me because on one level I was thinking, I don't remember... The things that would cause a big impact, but in my physical body, I could feel the impact. And I thought to myself, it's kind of like the way they use the score of a movie sometimes, that it's those little changes in the score, in the sounds, in the light, in the cuts of this, you know, the way they do that, that you realize. Why am I so, you know, ah, it's been all these little things, not that big, not that big dialogue piece, not that big CGI action scene. And yeah, I should yeah. have had a clue when, you know, a Shakespeare death scene starts it. But O'Brien, of course, didn't point that out. He just alluded to it <laughs> with that little change in the, in the score of that movie there, here. Gosh.
1: right. Oh. So, and bless him, we're, what is it, two thirds of the way through the book. And just like any other good, but we don't know where this is going to head. Jacob and Stephen might be over this gold Muslim alliance plot in a flash, or we might be about to have some deep voyage of discovery and wilderness exploration like Stephen did in the jungle in Southeast Asia or in the Andes. Really, really fascinating. I wonder how it's going to work for them. But they're not the only characters for whom we've got questions, right? There's there's John Daniel as well.
0: Well, it is. I kept wondering... You know, and, and I—I'll just admit right now. At first, I thought, "Oh no, he's just getting in to like him, and he's going to kill him off." Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I'm done with this. I don't want this to happen again. But he keeps coming back. But the injuries keep coming back too. And but we're getting so much more in his backstory. And as you point out, and they—it seems to weave in with what's going on here. But these odd things about you know splinter of bones coming out before splinter of bones coming out now you know, the the whole money thing, his contrast. And even I thought to myself, well, HMS Rattler, wait a minute, that's the ship that was sitting next to the Sophie when Jack first got her in Master Commander. Was that just O'Brien randomly using names and ships? Or was that like, "Uh aha. So if you thought this wasn't important, when he missed that prize, he was on the Rattler, which was sitting right next to Jack's first command. Ah, is that, and I thought, no, no, is he playing with me, or am I just playing with myself? I thought, you know, I probably ought to put my vial of, th- you know, thibayic tincture back on the <laughs> shelf, <and> not, <laughs> not be getting too deep here.
1: All right, <laughs> but the decaf one, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Who knows? Very uh, and, yeah. So, Mike, all, all this and birds. Wait. <laughs> right and a flock of snow egrets and a thousand birds and a thousand cannons a, a lot for us to have enjoyed in the chapter actually for a relatively short chapter like we so often say these he's uh he's really given us a lot to think about and lots of questions about what's coming next so mike I, I i feel the question coming upon us here um what do you say next week to a little bit more patrick o'brien with all my heart (音楽) Thank you.
0: In this book so far, um, so <laughs> there you go, Sam. Forgive us. Um, I told Ian earlier that I'd left my microphone on when I was editing, and he just found some of the text. <laughs> I was we can't
1: make- into a blueprint, unfortunately, but it was very funny. Yeah,
0: we found our outtake for the week.
1: Things, <laughs> things that your colleague wrote in the notes that they never wanted you to hear.
0: Oh my gosh, especially when they're speaking to themselves and <laughs> realize that back on their computer it's all being transcribed. Oh dear me.